We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. Are you living in survival mode? Just trying to make it through the day, trying to avoid getting hurt, hoping for approval, but all the time, the load on your back is getting heavier and heavier. My witness today believes that survival mode provides the illusion of safety of sorts, but it disconnects us from not only our true selves, but our own power. He is Friedemann Schaub, who is a physician, researcher, and a personal development coach. He is the author of The Fear and Anxiety Solution and a new book called The Empowerment Solution, Six Ways of Unlocking Your Potential with the Subconscious Mind. Now, we go into survival mode to try and protect ourselves, most often from fear and anxiety. So, what's your personal relationship with those two emotions? Well, I would say uh, they were companions since I was very little. Starting at the age of 10 about, I started to realize, oh, life is not as easy and magical and beautiful as I thought it is because I... I went to high school and all of a sudden my grades dropped. I realized I wasn't really good in math and obviously my parents didn't like it and they showed it to me with quite severe reading the riot act. So all of a sudden I lost my innocence. And from that point on, it was a conditional way of feeling accepted, which caused a lot of anxiety. And that went all the way into my I would say, late 20s, early 30s. So if you were good at maths, you were an acceptable child? Not only math. I had to be the best. Oh. <laughs> math didn't cut it. <laughs> no, you see, my parents were both uh, physicians, and their aspirations for me were to also step into their path and become a physician, although I really, really wanted to become an actor, but uh, they didn't have any of it. So I had to basically either be like my sister and be a little rebel, or I had to be the one who is a good child and eventually the golden child. But it's a lot of work being the golden child. Plus, I had the second job, which is Friedemann, which means man of peace. So I was a peacemaker of the family. So I had two jobs without pay and a lot of anxiety. And you never signed the contract for either of the jobs. You just found your name on the bottom of the contract, didn't you? Oh, maybe on a soul level somehow. I don't know. I always think that everything I went through actually prepared me for helping other people as well. Because I often hear, you know, when people talk to me and they ask me, so did you ever have anxiety, panic attacks, OCD? And I can say yes. Then they feel, okay, you know what you're talking about because when you're not ever had anxiety, you don't really know how it feels. Yeah. And I would say something like 80% of my clients were golden children because it's really hard and you're still dealing with it when you're an adult. So when you were 17, you went on a hiking holiday in the Italian Alps. Sounds lovely. And you went with your father. What did you learn? 
Well, I wasn't actually excited about this holiday because spending time alone with my father was a little daunting. He always felt like a, a minefield waiting to explode. So I, I kind of just tried my best to have some kind of a connection. We didn't have such a close connection because he kept people in general at arm's length. And there, what I discovered was that he wasn't just uh, you know, a person full of anger and frustration and a workaholic, but he also was a very deeply anxious man. And he opened up to me and, and shared that all those experiences from uh, Second World War and uh, from losing his father early and so on had shaped him and gave him the fear that he may one day lose everything again. And that fear was haunting him. And I think that's a fear for a lot of Germans of that generation, because after the war, there literally was nothing. I mean, I'm sitting here in Berlin in a building which was flattened and a new building put on top. And you can actually see that there was nothing here. In huge chunks of Berlin, there are no original buildings standing. So the fear must be very real. Yeah. And, you know, for him, it was also a fear that most of us cannot really relate to, which is the fear basically of having to face death every day, which was imprinted on him when he, as a 16-year-old, had to go into the war. And imagine being 16-year-old and having to go to the front and then getting caught, ending up in a prison camp, and then running away because he didn't get enough nutrition and he was almost starving. So he and his friend were escaping and his friend was shot while they were on the escape. He made it. And I mean, there are so many layers of emotions that a young man had to cope with. And I'm sure he had never anyone that he talked to professionally or released all this trauma. So no wonder that he was so tightly wound. So what lesson did you take away from that day? You know, the lesson for me was just that I could open myself more up to seeing him with compassion. I was less afraid of him because I realized that he was a haunted man and he wasn't just someone who haunted his family by, you know, having these anger outbursts. And it, it just changed my view on him. It also made me realize that anxiety is really something that shows up in all different kinds of forms. My, my anxiety showed up more with overachieving and worrying and all these kind of, you know, OCD behaviors. And his anxiety showed up more with, you know, having this need to control and need to always know what's happened next. And if he didn't feel in control, he was you know, going into his rageaholism. And so it made me aware that anxiety is all around us and all within us. And it made me certainly at that point already uh, very curious about how can we really change that? Of course, I didn't really get into this until my 30s, but still it was, was certainly a, a little seed that was planted at that time. But like a lot of young men of that age, you made a decision that you were going to be nothing like your father. How did you do with that task? Well, you know, <laughs> my wife would disagree sometimes, but uh, I think what I decided was just that I don't want to necessarily go into this control mode and always worrying. And for him, it was especially worrying about money. 
And I just changed my belief around, you know, money is giving you peace of mind because my father certainly made a good living, but he still didn't have a peace of mind. And and what I really felt also is that we need to find a way, which I later on became more and more clear, to define an antidote to anxiety. What is really the medicine to anxiety? And and what I find is that what I was struggling with, what my father was struggling with, what my sister was struggling with, and of course my mother too, the whole shebang of family had anxiety, was trust. We did not have any trust. Not trust in ourselves, not trust in other people, not trust in any higher power. So that lack of trust makes you just act in this survival mode. And that's why I also wrote the book to See, you know, there is more to anxiety than just a feeling. There is a whole lifestyle that goes with anxiety. And it's often even more important to address the patterns on how we behave than just focusing on the emotion. So what are the patterns that we should be looking out for? You know, there are many. And in the book, I describe six. And my father doesn't really fit in any of those. I mean, kind of, but the six that I find in my clients, the most common are, you could summarize them, avoider patterns and pleaser patterns. And then there are, of course, the achiever pattern, and then there is a control pattern, but that's for another book. This is just, you know, the, the patterns that I find so many are falling into. An avoider pattern basically means that you're avoiding either to be seen because you just feel, you know, it's not safe to speak up, it's not safe to be yourself. And there, my father certainly was in that pattern because he didn't feel safe to be vulnerable. And so many people that have anxiety but are high-powered or overachievers or in control, you don't see it. Inside, they are crumbling. But on the outside, you know, they have that stern demeanor. And so that, that invisibility of their inner pain, their wounds, is a form of avoidance. And then there is a procrastination as avoidance and the victim. There are quite a few. Well, we'll look later in detail at procrastination because I think that's a modern problem. But you decided the best way to deal with your anxiety when you were young was to power through it. Yes. How did that work? And when did you realize that it wasn't going to work anymore? I mean, power through it basically meant, A, to really always meet the expectations. At the beginning, it was my parents' expectations, and later on, it became my expectations, and then it became my boss's expectations. So always being that one that never fails and sets the bar always higher. Of course, you know, it was the highlight of the year when I got a pat on the back or some kind of a, you know, paper in research published. But then I was still, after these, you know, positive feelings are wearing off, which usually after 10 minutes is done, you're still dealing with the next anxiety and the next fear. And, and there, there was a good bottle of Italian wine or, you know, I'm not ashamed. I was also smoking and eating way too much and all those things to stuff down the emotions and not have to get in touch with them. That was a form of powering through. And I would say, you know, when I, for example, had to give a presentation, I had a good old beta blocker that also made you at least not feel your feelings. You're definitely having them still. And I don't think that I really was aware of how anxious I was until 
I had these panic attacks. And these panic attacks came in the middle of the night. I mean, really like someone was taking me by the shoulders and waking me up and saying, are you sure you want to live like this for another 25 years? Is that really what life is supposed to be? I mean, I wasn't thinking these thoughts consciously. There was some deeper inner voice that just slapped me over the head and said, there is something wrong with you. And it woke me up. And it made me reconsider a lot of things, including the relationship I was in, including my choices that looking back at that time when I really felt myself, there was just a big void. There was nothing there. And I, I found myself in a church at some point and thinking like, well, maybe there will be some answer and there will be some connection to something that can remind me of who I am. But I didn't find it. And that scared me even more, that I didn't know any longer who I am. And maybe I never knew up till that point. Maybe I knew before I was 10, but then I definitely quickly forgot. It's interesting, isn't it, that when we're young, we often know a lot of really important things. I, you know, I have a, a client at the moment who I'm trying to help her get in touch with what she really wants to do. And I keep on getting the the same kind of sort of very adult sort of kind of responses. And, you know, I'm trying to say, well, what did the seven-year-old you want? And then suddenly all of these wonderful things come out, but of course they're not practical and have been squashed down. And it's a great tragedy really, isn't it? Yeah, but you know, I think it's also a great gift. And that's one of the things I write about in the book, you know, connecting to this innocent self that still knew our dreams and knew our gifts. And, you know, when I thought about that, I realized that I definitely believed in the magic of nature of life. And that may be a very naive attitude of a child, but that belief is exactly what I now live. I do believe that all of us have the potential to change, the potential to heal. And so that belief helps me a lot to hold that, you know, that consciousness of you can also do this when people that I'm working with are not really in that place yet. And I also, as a child, felt very connected and I had somehow, I don't know what that was, but I had the ability to make people tell me all the secrets that they usually don't tell anyone. And uh. sometimes I was surprised why they tell me all this stuff. But it was just uh, one of those things that I think I was born with. And that certainly is not something you immediately think about. Okay, that makes sense that you now become X, Y, and Z. But these are little traits. And remembering the traits, these gifts it can really lead you to a new path of fulfillment. At least it did for me. So I'm aware of you in this personal crisis. You know, your life is not making sense anymore. Your job is not making sense. Your relationship is not making sense. You don't know who you are. I mean, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> it was. <laughs> How how did you put one foot in front of the other and find your way forward? Well, you know, I fell first even deeper <laughs> because, you know, I thought, okay, well, maybe the solution is to take the offer of the head of my department and do a two-year research project in the Max Planck Institute. And I got a stipend from the government. So everything 
seemed like, okay, maybe this is going to be the answer. And it would have been also where I worked in Munich. So I was ready. I quit my job in the hospital, you know, I had a week off. And in that week, I got the call from this institute that told me, oh, sorry, plans have changed. We have no more space for you and you cannot come. So I didn't ah. have a job. and I didn't have a place to go. And I had a lot of freak out happening. And that's where I think something magical happened, which was I went with my friend into a beer garden, which you do in Munich, and discussed my misery. And all of a sudden, there was this little voice, again, a voice that may have woken me up there in the middle of the night with panic attacks that said, well, what about going to the U.S.? You always wanted to go to the U.S. This could be an opportunity. Why not doing it now? And I don't know, that was like the eureka moment. You know, it was, I didn't really think about this consciously, but my subconscious thought, very good idea, because then you get to get away from all of this, including your girlfriend, and you can have a fresh start. And so I contacted different labs. And the one that I ended up with, which was also kind of an interesting subconscious serendipity, was actually the one that I hadn't planned at all. I just was walking down the hallway in the hospital and there was this guy that I just briefly met a colleague and I had the feeling I had to ask him. And he was on his way to lunch, so he wasn't in a hurry. So I asked him, hey, by the way, I'm looking for a research lab in the US. Do you know anybody? I mean, out of, a, I don't know, 200 uh, colleagues, why do I ask this one? He said, oh, well, that's funny because I just met one this weekend at a conference in Switzerland. So he's in Seattle. Maybe you want to reach out to him. And that's how I ended up in Seattle. And that's how that didn't necessarily resolve my lostness. I mean, I was even more lost when I arrived in Seattle because then I was nobody. I was, I couldn't hide behind a white coat and a stethoscope anymore. All of a sudden, I was naked in a research lab where I had no clue what to do. My English was pretty basic and I felt all alone. So that made me feel like this was a really bad idea. And then I stumbled across different openings. And one of them was meditation and yoga. And another one was just getting more interested in you know, the, the subconscious and Russian metaphysical authors and all those things that I had never taken time for, they showed up. And I was like a little sponge, hungry to get some more knowledge and some more connection. And, and thank God that led me back on a path that, you know, is, I believe, my path. So the answer is getting in contact with your subconscious mind. So I think we need to define exactly what we mean by our subconscious. You know, the subconscious on paper, it's a deeper part of the mind. It's this aspect of ourselves that is responsible for most of our emotions. When we're, you know, juxtaposition it to the conscious mind, which is more the intellectual, rational mind. Well, when do we actually choose to be anxious or insecure? I mean, I don't. So it's not that I wake up and say, oh, let's have a little insecurity today. It's usually in the way, but somehow it comes up. So that's more the subconscious, irrational part that brings us to the surface. And then it's the subconscious also takes care of our memories. You know, lots of our memories are kind of somewhere in a drawer and then when we need them, or when it's time for us to remember, they get pulled out and all of a sudden they're there. And 
Then it's also these automatic behaviors, these patterns that allow us to think about something completely different and still eat and not stab our eyes with a fork. So that, there are a lot of things the subconscious is doing, but the subconscious is also very committed. You know, there are two things the subconscious likes or does, which is to keep us safe and to make us happy. And when the subconscious is focusing on keeping us safe, because it feels like you're not really safe in the world, happiness is not necessarily the first thought. So this is when the subconscious becomes like the overprotective bodyguard or the nanny who just wants to make sure that you're okay. And that is where the subconscious, unfortunately, has its ideas, like in my case, in many people's case, from early upbringings, you know, from imprints, from programmings. And, and it doesn't change his mind because no one tells the subconscious, eh, it's not relevant anymore to be the wallflower or to be the little overachiever or to be the peacemaker. And so we have to update our subconscious. And that is where the magic is. If we are consciously working with the subconscious, we not only can get the subconscious out of the survival pattern mode, but we also have an ally with us who can help us to find happiness, to shift gears, to help us to find fulfillment. Now, I'm following all of this, and I sort of know the answer to this a little bit because I'm in analysis and I've spent the last three years trying to get to know my subconscious. But for people listening today they're going to think, well, if I can't reach it with my mind, how can I get there? Well, I mean, the subconscious is not not reachable or it does not want to be reached. I mean, the subconscious is more than willing to collaborate. There are two things. One is we're oblivious, like I was, no clue how to really communicate with the subconscious. And that's something I can share in a moment. But the other one is also that the subconscious doesn't trust us. The conscious. And that is certainly something that I can, you know, also <laughs> be a testimony to because when we are consciously doing the opposite of what the subconscious wants us to do, I mean, we are not really a good steward. I mean, we are sitting in the driver's seat and steering the car against the wall over and over again. Well, the subconscious says, sorry, you are not someone I can really you know, give power back to because obviously you don't know what you're doing. And that is what a lot of people, unfortunately, are dealing with. The subconscious conscious disconnect happens because we're not acting in our best interest or we are even abusing ourselves either by, you know, drugs, alcohol and so on, or with how we talk to ourselves, how we treat ourselves. And so we have to do both. We have to learn to speak the language of the subconscious, which are images. So visualizations are really, you know, that's what gets to the subconscious. Sensations, anything we feel in the body, it's a very, very good gateway to the subconscious. When you think about an emotion and just notice words in your body and then connecting to your body, it's also the things we hear, just like I said, the things that, you know, woke me up. It can be the things that you have as spontaneous memories coming up, like cross-references or dreams. The subconscious has many ways to communicate, but we have to take a little time. And that's why I find it so interesting when we are meditating and the only thing we think we should do is to push everything that's coming up away. 
it's exactly the opposite of what we actually should be doing, which is meditating and and having a little conversation. I mean, it's good to, you know, center yourself, calm your mind and so on, but also pay attention. What is coming up? Who is screaming and yelling inside of you and, and freaking out or wanting attention? And that is where I think the subconscious is not just one voice and one entity. I mean, we have a whole family of subconscious parts inside of us, and most of them get along, but some of them don't. And so it's an interesting thing to look inside and see, wow, look, I'm not just one person. I have all these different facets, and the goal is just to make them somehow come into alignment. So you're suggesting that we meditate. What else are you suggesting we do? But meditate and listen. Meditate and be connected. Meditate with an open mind and open heart. Don't meditate with the idea to have crickets in your head, because that's where we are getting into this power struggle with the subconscious. Because when we actually sit down and listen, we actually have an awareness of the voices inside of us that we usually don't have because there is so much noise all around us. And what I would suggest is just listen to the thoughts that are bubbling up and write them down. And also during the day, let's say you are, you know, on the way to a meeting or to a date, and then there are all these little nagging thoughts, you know, uh, are you sure they like you? I think you don't really look that great. You should have gone to the hairdresser. Maybe you have bad breath, blah, blah, blah. Write it all down and notice what those thoughts have in common. What's very interesting about when we are especially dealing with anxiety just taking a little inventory for a week where we three, four times a day write down our negative thoughts, the thoughts we like to avoid, we can A, see they repeat themselves over and over again. And we can also see that they are connected. They're connected usually to a belief, like the branches of a tree that are connected to some roots. And then when, like in my case, it was always about the fear of failure and not being good enough. And then all of a sudden you can really ask yourself, where did this start? What, what inside of me had this experience that I am only conditionally loved or conditionally safe? And, and if you just ask these questions and you take a little time, you will have memories coming up. You will have all of a sudden, you know, these answers, not necessarily solutions, but the answers of your inner map, your inner landscape. And that's a big step forward. So you believe that beliefs can't be erased unless they're replaced. So tell me about that. Well, what I mean with that is that when we're having like a belief, like let's say you're not safe or you're not lovable, and you believe that, you know, this is to be true and therefore you acted like this. You know, you were ducking and hiding or you were, you know, somehow uh, always expecting friends to not call you back. Or when you went into a relationship, you were so jealous or so suspicious that the relationship always ended. And then your belief that you're not lovable got just confirmed. That's, you know, the belief had, as I said before, a lifestyle, a certain sorts of behavior that got with it. And it became part of your identity. So if you're saying, I'm going to just let go of this belief, I erase it, you're basically releasing or erasing a part of yourself. And that part of yourself is now empty. 
to avoid. Like if you would say, well, my left arm hurts, so I will not move it anymore. Well, it's just hanging and dangling, but doesn't really do anything anymore. So what you need to do is to not erase only, but really replace and outgrow old beliefs. So you're choosing not necessarily, oh, I'm the most lovable person in the world, but you know, maybe I'm okay with myself. I start to find the source of safety within because I know whatever life brings me, I probably can find a solution. I can deal with it. So these are stepping stone new beliefs. And then you are acting accordingly. You're creating new patterns. And, and so you're really developing your personality and your way of showing up in the world according to this new belief. Then it stays. What I noticed with people that try to erase beliefs the void gets filled. And usually the void gets filled with something very similar as the old belief or maybe exactly the same, just because, again, we, we cannot erase ourselves. And they've got to be believable beliefs. We can't just say, you know, I'm wonderful. Because if you don't believe it, however many times you say you're wonderful, it's not going to make any difference, is it? I so agree with that. Absolutely. I think that's one of the big mistakes of this magical thinking that if we are just repeating an affirmation a hundred times, all of a sudden we have it incorporated. No, there is this, you know, critical faculty in our mind that always, you know, shakes heads and says, well, this is BS. Don't believe it. it's not possible too much. You cannot go out with Jennifer Aniston or Brad Pitt and that's it. And so then, you know, we have to also, you know, obviously realize this is a protective pattern because this part of us doesn't want us to get disappointed. So make it smaller. We don't have to shoot for the stars. Let's just go for the moon first and, and just grow into something that's easy to achieve. From I'm anxious to being, oh, I'm happy and confident, maybe too big. Just go from I'm anxious to I'm feeling content or I'm feeling you know more at peace with myself or I'm feeling more hopeful or whatever those beliefs are. I mean, emotions. Even it's okay to be anxious. It's a normal, rational human emotion. And the truth is, basically everybody feels it. Well, that's very true. Absolutely. I think that's one of those things that I often talk about, that the worst anxiety is not necessarily the anxiety, it's our anxiety of the anxiety, because we are you know, afraid of ourselves. And that's something when, when you had a panic attack, you may only have a panic attack five times in your life, but you may be plagued by the fear of the next panic attack for the rest of your life. And so that secondary fear, that secondary anxiety, that is something that a lot of people don't address because it's it's something where they feel like, well, I have to watch out left and right. When is the next onslaught of the emotion? And, and that is certainly a sure way of not trusting yourself, not having you know any connection with yourself because all you want is run away from yourself, which is pretty impossible. And that's how we often get stuck. I often talk about the second arrow because life often sends an arrow straight into our heart. Um, I'll share one now. For the first time ever, I forgot to turn up for a recording of the podcast. In fact, it was with Friedemann. And, you know, so I got that particular arrow. And what I tried not to do was 
send a second arrow into myself to saying, you know, I'm stupid, I'm incompetent, you know, Friedemann will never, ever forgive me. And, you know, so effectively, I send a second arrow into my chest if I'm not careful. And then I rootle around with the second arrow to get, <laughs> see if I can get even more pain out of it. You know, the first arrow is bad enough, but often we're dealing with the second arrow too. And yeah. forget the second arrow, the first one is bad enough. And I totally agree with this. And I think, you know, this is also where self-compassion is one of those keys of self-empowerment that I describe in the book. Because how often do we have an emotion like anxiety and we are berating ourselves? And how often do we make a little mistake and we are so incredibly hard on ourselves? And and learning to have a little bit of compassion and and realize that, no, it's okay. It's okay to make mistakes and it's maybe I'll show what needed to happen. And I reassure you, I was so glad that you canceled that day because I really was totally overloaded with too much stuff going on. So this was, ah, thank you. <laughs> so maybe you just did me a subconscious favor. Your subconscious and my subconscious were in cahoots and uh, we just didn't know. <laughs> So these six keys, we've got compassion that's one. What are the other five? Self-responsibility, which is especially important with the victim pattern. And, uh, you know, so many of us feel that we had gone through traumas, abuse, betrayal, and then we are living in that shadow for all of our lives, expecting it to happen again and, and acting, uh, you know, as if... Like in my case, we cannot trust anyone. And so taking responsibility and realizing no matter what happened to us, it's not what defines us. It's what we do next. That's really who we are and that we can always learn and, and dig in and understand that this is an opportunity. So that's an important key. Then there is the self-reliance, which is the key for the procrastinator, especially, which, you know, this is something I see so many times that uh, we are having great intentions. And, you know, procrastination is not about, you know, getting the job done or meeting a deadline or changing the light bulbs. Procrastination is especially also about taking care of ourselves. And so many times we are, you know, having good intentions to take care of ourselves. Yes, I'm going to journal. Yes, I'm going to do walking. Yes, I have, you know, all this wonderful books I want to read. And then we tell ourselves we do it and then we don't. And so this is where the subconscious looks at us and says, well, see, I, I guess you're not following through. I guess you're not really very responsible or reliable. So I'm just going to stay, again, in the position of running your life and keeping you safe because you cannot do it yourself. So self-reliance is also really a big stepping stone towards self-trust. Then where is self-awareness? which is the awareness of your truth. It's a connection to something deeper inside of us, something that we cannot necessarily describe in words, but it's there. It's this inner center of gravity, the essence of who we are. And then there is self-commitment, which is incredibly important, especially when we are pleasers and peacemakers and caretakers, that we are committing also to ourselves, committing to our boundaries, committing to our energy and time. And the last one is self-love, 
And that's like, you know, self-love. I often ask people, so say out loud, I love myself. And you know, the Germans are the worst because they have a really hard time to say I love myself. You know, I'm a German, so I know that I love you is really, really reserved only for a few special people. You don't say it. Like the Americans say, I love you to the postman. But, uh, you know, I love myself is for most people, not only the Germans, really, really difficult. No, this sounds weird. Oh, it makes me cringe. It makes So that is something where you can see how little self-love so many of us have. And how do you build self-love? That's what I describe in the book. So let's all say together, I love myself. I love myself. <laughs> it wasn't so difficult, was it? And surprisingly <laughs> enough, the world hasn't ended. <laughs> and yes. it actually saying it, it didn't feel sort of too egotistical either. It just sort of thought, you know, I'm afraid to say I'm going to quote RuPaul here. If you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love anybody else? Thanks, Rue, and that's totally true. And I mean, a lot, actually, there are people that dispute this. There are people that say, no, no, you can learn to love yourself through somebody else's love. And I would say that's possible. That can also be a slippery slope to codependency. So I would just suggest to give self-love a chance. And uh, because in the end, you're it. You're going to be with yourself for the rest of your life. You're going to have the last breath with yourself. So you better get along with yourself because otherwise you have really constantly bad company. What a lovely way of putting it. Well, in a moment, we're going to look at a letter that's been sent in by a listener. And that's in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. There are lots of ways of getting in contact with The Meaningful Life and participating. We also have a newsletter which you can get and all the access to this particular podcast is through my website www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts and you'll find a way of signing up for my Substack newsletter there. And you can also send in a dilemma that you're having. And so here's the letter I've got for today. I have a friend who goes all the way back to junior school. She knew my mother before she passed away last year, and I know all her family. We've double dated, we've supported each other through ups and downs, but it can also be difficult too. We can rub each other up the wrong way, fall out and threaten never to speak to each other again. More like sisters than best friends. At least that's what my mother used to say. Since my mother died, things have been hard for me. I don't have much other family and I often feel alone. While my mother was ill, my friend was a rock, but I feel more and more that I'm too much. I worry when she does not answer a text almost immediately. She says all the right things, but I wonder if she means them in her heart. I want to make plans, perhaps a holiday and a joint 30th birthday party, but she drags her heels. She says I want to have all these in-depth conversations and we should not forget to enjoy the summer. Is it me? Do I expect too much? Well, it's a very good question. And 
I mean, obviously, she's expecting too much from this friend because his friend is not really willing to give this what she's expecting. The question is just why? Why has this relationship changed? And is there something also inside of her that has changed after, you know, this loss that she went through, that she is leaning more on this friend? I mean, it is a huge moment losing a parent. And I mean, she lost her mother, you know, quite young. That's true. Absolutely. And maybe, you know, this not having a lot of family makes this friend more important. Now, what happens sometimes is that we are, two things can happen with her. One is that she needs the friend to be kind of a replacement, you know, giving or getting something from the friend that her mother used to give her, whether it's unconditional love, whether it's these you know, deeper conversations, whether it's a sense of belonging and, and feeling at home. And that can make the friend almost, you know, feel uncomfortable because there's too much need. And if the friend doesn't want to be needed that much, then there is an imbalance. It's no longer on the same, you know, equal playing field. And the other thing is that I don't know if this friend had a close relationship to the mother too, but I assume since they know each other a long time. I think so, yeah. And so probably this friend is grieving too. But, you know, there are people that are really needing to feel the grief and the pain and not afraid of it and want to talk about it. And others want to compartmentalize it and and stuff it somewhere in a corner and enjoy the summer because they're not really ready yet or they don't want to necessarily have that, that shadow uh, always present. And so maybe as this uh, you know person that wrote to you wants to reach out to the friend, probably also to have these deep and maybe at times painful conversations, it is triggering something in the friend that she just does not want to get in touch with. Her own pains, her own fears, fear of loss, whatever she has as unresolved issues. So my advice would be not to take it personally. My advice is to also not give up on this friend. It's just sometimes we're in different places. What she goes through right now is an enormous rite of passage. Losing parents, I lost them both, means a lot to the inner child, means a lot to the subconscious. It's like, oh my God, I don't have the safety net anymore. I don't have this source of unconditional acceptance. And and you have to really see this as an opportunity. And sometimes the acceptance from your parents was not particularly unconditional as well. So you've got all of that material to work through too. Absolutely. Just when you thought you got enough problems, I just thrown in another one for you. But I mean, it, this is a huge moment, you know. As I said a little bit earlier, I'm going through analysis and I'm, uh, you know, going deep into my subconscious and trying to understand it, and it keeps on telling me all this stuff about loss and you know where is my home and you know, and I'm working through the death of my father, which. It's coming up to two years ago. And, you know, I'm sort of saying to my unconscious a little bit, for goodness sake, we should be over this by now. And it's not, you know, it's got a lot more work to do on this. So I think you need to be patient with yourself. So if this friend isn't going to be a resource, where can our correspondent get support from? 
Well, I mean, I think the first support should be from within. I mean, I really think she needs to be aware of what she really needs. You know, if there is something that she wants to talk with his friend about that is about grief or loss or fear or feeling, you know, confused, having no sense of belonging, well, either she finds someone like you or me to talk to and figure out what it is really that she's you know, having as unresolved questions, what her deeper sense uh, or her deeper self is is really looking for. And then there are certainly also, you know, grief communities and groups that can help just to deal and not feel like, you know, you're an outsider or you're dealing with someone no one else wants to deal with because you are in the company of others that know exactly how it feels and that know exactly what, what it means to lose someone. I think when I lost my parents, there were I mean, different feelings with my father and my mother. But I think what I really was looking for is finding peace. You know, I did have this panic attack at the beginning about, oh, my God, I have no parent because they, they died like two months after another. And uh, oh my so very quickly, everything is gone that I used to hold on to as this is you know always a place I can go back to. And and so my my subconscious certainly wasn't very happy about this, but I could find this reassurance in myself that I am the adult now. You are safe with me. I am the one who will give you a home and will show you unconditional love, maybe even more understanding than your parents could give you. And and I noticed, I mean, this was again one of those nights that basically wanted my subconscious to have some conversation. And I noticed how this inner communication really soothed me very quickly. There was something really almost as if I was holding my grieving self. And what that gave me a lot of peace. And then gradually, I just also found that the things that I felt I was having as questions, questions about my parents, questions why they did not this or that, or why we never talked about this or that, or could I have done more? I lived, you know, 8,000 kilometers away from them. And all those things I needed to resolve in order to find peace. So grieving is not just a, oh, this is painful because there is loss. Grieving has usually a lot of different unsettling conversations that it requires for us to heal it. And I always think with the subconscious nudges us, it usually has a question. Most of our negative self-talk is questions. Most of our emotions are about questions. We just don't necessarily take the time to give the answer. And interestingly enough, I was writing down two questions for you to think about, and they are, what do I need now? And what is this feeling trying to tell me? So, you know, today I'm feeling this. What is this feeling trying to tell me? And I think journaling is a very good way to start to think about that question. So you don't have to go through all of this with your friend, that you can talk to yourself. And if you're finding you're not getting answers, just sort of write the question over and over again. What do I need? What do I need? What do I need? And then possibly you'll find that after you've written it, you know, 50 times, you know, that something will come up. So try that. Those are two questions I think would be a good start. I really like that. And I think that's, you know, where also, you know, like you said, 50 times may sound like a lot, but 
it's a little bit like, you know, in Catholic Church Rosary. You just, you know, go through the same thing over and over again. And eventually there is something because of this routine that uh, is opening up and says, oh, you're not going away. You're not just, you know, trying to turn the TV on. You're actually staying and be curious about what I have to say. That is a big step. And I think if you ask your subconscious these questions and it sort of knows that you are truly interested in the answers, it's far more likely to trust you and actually say something to you. So this is going to take time. You know, this is a long task. It's not, you know, once and you'll get the shining answer. I think in my experience, the unconscious sort of, it's a bit like following a trail of breadcrumbs. You don't know exactly where you're going, but you just follow breadcrumb after breadcrumb after breadcrumb. And then finally, you'll find something interesting in the forest. But what that is, you don't know. And so, you know, don't worry when you set off on the journey that all you've got is a few breadcrumbs. You'll find where you're supposed to be going after a while. I agree. And I do believe that, you know, there are also the questions that the subconscious, I mean, we can ask a subconscious, but then there are the questions that the subconscious asks us. And and those questions are often hidden in these spontaneous, often seen as negative thoughts. You know, let's say after a loss, you know, I'm all alone. Well, that's maybe how it sounds. Or this friend doesn't care about me. You know, no one loves me. And so if you're turning this into my subconscious, ask me a question. Am I all alone? Will nobody love me? Does his friend not care about me? Then you become the source of the answer. So then you're not really seeing the questions as negative statements or these thoughts as something to avoid. You're just seeing that there is something inside of you that needs clarification, that needs support, and that needs to hear from you something reassuring. And I love questions because they definitely hijack the brain and say, oh, there's a question. I, uh, it's like what we learn in school already. You know, when someone asks you a question, you better have an answer. So taking your negative thoughts or your subconscious negative thoughts into question form definitely also creates a, a sense of trust and connection. Great idea. I love that. So we're beginning to get close to the end of our conversation. So I need to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? Wow. I love this question. I think my life is meaningful, period. (laughs) You know, what I love about my life, I think, is that I told my wife the other day, we have really an interesting life. You know, like you, you have been also living in all different kinds of places and you followed your heart and you just, you know, felt like, why not taking the leap and doing something different? And and that is something that I find is the ever unfoldment of my life. And that is the meaning to always discover something new. And what I discovered since moving to France is that I love being Farmer Fred. I mean, there is a persona inside of me that just didn't know how fun it is to have horses and a tractor and mow fields and take care of land and all of those things that I didn't really have discovered. And that is where I think the meaning is being curious about what else is possible, what else needs to be unlocked. And I think we are living, like Einstein said, maybe only... of our possibilities, and there's a lot 
that we can unearth. Well, the conversation doesn't have to end here if you are a supporter of The Meaningful Life, because we're going to talk about, as I promised earlier, procrastination. So if you're procrastinating becoming a supporter of The Meaningful Life, I think now's the time to stop procrastinating on it, because you can unlock all the bonus material by subscribing directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the material that way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.